We're going to be uh, covering Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 today and focusing in on that section of Scripture. But I'm actually, uh, you can write that down in your notes if you want, but I'm actually going to start you, uh, the first place we're going to turn is in Romans 1, 18 through 32. So we'll be covering Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, but we'll start in Romans 1. I still remember the moment with complete and utter dread. Kelly and I had been at our church for about a year, and we had learned a lot about the Bible, and we'd started to get heavily involved, but we were realizing uh, recently that at that point in our life, we actually knew very little about our faith. And this was very unfortunate because we were asked to be camp counselors at our camps or our church's youth camp for the summer. And I went into it with complete confidence that I would mold and shape young minds. The reality was was that I actually didn't know much about anything. Uh, Still don't. I've learned a little bit. But then one afternoon during our cabin devotional, surrounded by these young minds, these young men of about five to about ten years old, I did my best to preach to them the gospel and told them about confessing with their mouth and praying a prayer of belief and asking Jesus into their heart. Well, a boy in my cabin, about eight years old at the time, a genius probably by now because he was a genius then, he looked up at me and he said, hey Hans, if that's how people get saved, if that's how they go to heaven when they die, what do people do before Jesus? In my head, I heard a giant wah, wah. His point was they couldn't pray to Jesus and so how did they get saved? If that was the work that got us to heaven, then what did they do? Well, I was pretty rocked that I didn't know the answer because I didn't understand the underlying principles of salvation. I did to them what I had done, had done to me, which was pray a prayer, right? And I struggled in that moment to understand the overarching story of the Bible and the importance of the Old Testament and the time before Jesus in the story of the gospel that I really only knew from the New Testament. The more I studied the word over the years, really over the last 15 years, that was about 15 years ago, this all started to change. Pastor and author Tim Keller, how many of you know him? He sums it up this way. He had the same experience in his own life, and this is what he said. He was about 18 or 19, I believe, at the time where he he was thinking of. He said, one night listening to R.C. Sproul and a biblical theologian named Alec Motier, you might remember that name because he's the primary uh, person that I used in the midst of Isaiah, One night with R.C. Sproul and Alec Motier, he recalls this. He says, I will always remember Dr. Motier's answer to a question about the relationship of Old Testament Israel to the church. After saying something about the discontinuities between the church and Israel, he insisted that we were all one people of God. Then he asked us to imagine how the Israelites under Moses would have given their testimony to someone who asked for it. They would have said something like this. We were in a foreign land, in bondage, under the sentence of death. But our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God, took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and God let us out. Now we are on the way to the promised land. We are not there yet, of course, but we have the law to guide us, and through blood sacrifice we also have his presence in our midst. So he will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. 
Then Dr. Motier concluded, now think about it. A Christian today could say the same thing almost word for word. Keller says, my young self was thunderstruck. I had held the vague, unexamined impression that the Old Testament people were saved through obeying a host of detailed laws, but that today we were freely given, uh, forgiven and accepted by faith. This little thought experiment of Dr. Motier showed me in a stroke not only that the Israelites had been saved by grace and that God's salvation had been a, by costly atonement and grace all along, but also that the pursuit of holiness, pilgrimage, obedience, and deep community should characterize Christians as well. Brothers and sisters, to understand the God of the Bible is not to look past the Old Testament and to hurry up and get to the new, but to understand the overarching work of salvation and grace in the midst of what God has been working out since the beginning of time. To fully understand the gospel, we need to understand the overarching story of God. And so we're going to take a good deal of time this morning to look at the context of our text today before we actually get into it. I know you're used to that with me. I know that you enjoy geeking out a little bit to understand what Paul is truly saying. And so we're going to take some time, but this is going to serve us well because it will also be a pretty large introduction to not only this week, but next week. So let's think through the biblical storyline for a minute to help us understand what we mean. The first thing that we look to is that God created a kingdom in the cosmos— He created his creation, and that was his kingdom. And he installed Adam and Eve to steward it as sub-regents, and this was known as the Adamic Covenant. They would be his stewards over his creation, subduing it, bringing everything into allegiance to God as king, and trusting him for their provision and obeying his will. Well, you guys know what happened. How well did that go? Not great. Unfortunately, they disobeyed and fell from grace and rebellion against God. Probably, uh, I would have done it even faster because we are all sinners saved by grace. But there was this thing called the fall. In so doing, they handed the power of the world over to the adversary, Satan himself, the prince of the power of the air. And mankind became so destructive in their hatred for one another, their anger, their spitefulness, their warfare, that God started over. He flooded the earth and he used Noah and his family to rebuild and restart mankind as the citizens of a new kingdom. But how quickly did that fall? Very quickly. If you go back and read the story, Noah had a little bit too much grape juice that had been fermented and it didn't go well for him. But immediately mankind went from there, and they fell into the same pattern of rebellion and sin because it's built into us. It's called original sin. Even at one point, they rallied behind a king. A wonderful name. His name was Nimrod. Everybody say Nimrod. Okay, King Nimrod from the Tower of Babel. And Nimrod was rallying the people together to be king, to fight against God. And the the tower that he was building was a tower that was a uh, temple to the glory of a false god that he was supposedly the image of. And so God handed mankind over to the demonic entities, the spiritual powers that they worshipped. And what he did, did was he dispersed them according to those spiritual powers into what we know as nations or tribes. Okay? So he dispersed them. He said, well, if you guys are going to continue in this sin in order to save you from yourself, I will disperse you. And this is what this odd statement in Deuteronomy 32 is all about. Deuteronomy 32.8, you can write that down. 
It's this very odd statement that a lot of people don't know what to do with. It says, when the Most High, meaning Yahweh Elohim, the creator God, gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, that's speaking of Genesis, the Tower of Babel and its outcome, it says he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. And that phrase, the sons of God, is speaking of demonic entities, okay? So he let them be dispersed according to the gods that they worshipped that had demonic entities behind them, okay? Up until very recently in world history, a nation was built around a god that it worshipped, Okay? Now, this is exactly what Paul is talking about in the book of Romans. Everybody, if you haven't gone there already, look at Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What's the truth? That God is God, he's the creator, we are not, he is the king. But by our unrighteousness, what do we do? We speak that he is not the king and we are. Or at the very least, the God, the the lowercase g gods that we serve are the king. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, mankind, we are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. These are their idols, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. These are false gods, idols, behind which were demonic entities. Therefore, God gave them up. That's his dispersing. He gave them up not only to those gods, but also to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served themselves, the creature, rather than the creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. Paul is summarizing right there a huge amount of information from the Old Testament. And we read this and we go, oh, Paul's saying, mankind bad. True, he is saying that. But he's saying more than that. He's saying the whole process of this timeline we've laid out, that if God did nothing at that point, the nations would fall. Because at this point in history, there is only one kingdom. Before God acted, there is one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, ruled by the prince of the power of the air, Satan, with his disobedient citizens known as mankind. All were headed for wrath of the just creator God. And if God had never done anything, this is what we must grasp. If God had never acted, would he be an unjust God? No. In fact, he would only be just if he let it continue out and did nothing. He would be gracious beyond what is deserved if he stepped in and did something. Now, the word for these nations, okay, uh, in the Hebrew, it's the word goyim, okay? In the Greek, it's ethne. You guys are used to the word ethnic, okay? Ethne means Gentiles. It also means nations. It's where we get the the, uh, word ethnic in the English language, Okay? The nations outside Greece were seen as pagan or heathen. They were unenlightened people. And what we'll see today is that Paul uses the same word in his letters to describe anyone outside the faith of Israel. He calls them ethne, Gentiles, or the Gentile nations. And so if we go back to this picture and we look at it, the ethne, the nations, the Gentiles, the ones that were not in covenant with God, they needed some help. They needed a rescuer because they, like we, were on the path to wrath and hell. 
And if that was where we landed, God would be just and good because we have chosen it by our rebellion against our creator. We needed a rescuer, one that could free us from the kingdom of darkness. And this is where a lowly man named Abram enters into our picture. So Yahweh in his grace, he saw Abram and he chose Abram and he used Abram. He entered into covenant relationship with Abram. And he renames him Abraham. And he promises him that through his offspring, the world will be blessed. In other words, they will be rescued from their fallen state, the kingdom of darkness. And he makes a covenant of promise to him that we see in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse, meaning the wrath of God will come upon him. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now unfortunately, this set of verses has been misused very often in Christendom to say if you're nice to the Jews, if you like the Jews, you're blessed. If you don't like the Jews, you're going to be cursed by God. That is not what this means at all. At all. Okay? What this means is God's going to use Abram in covenant relationship and anyone who enters through that covenant relationship will be blessed in knowing God. Anyone who decides to not enter through that covenant relationship will be cursed. This covenant of promise was going to produce through Abraham a peculiar people from whom the Messiah would eventually emerge. And this covenant of of promise was the only way for salvation to come and it still is the only way for salvation to come, as you'll see. To be outside this covenant of promise meant eventual wrath. If you wanted salvation, it wasn't by coming and keeping all the laws of the Jews. It was by stepping into the covenant people of God, the children of Abraham. This is why when Paul talks about salvation in Romans, he references the covenant of Abraham. Turn with me to Romans 9. Romans 9. Some of you are probably at this moment thinking, are we turning into a Messianic Jewish church? No, we're not. Okay? But I find that often, just as Tim Keller talked about in his early experience, one of the things that newer believers, um, some of whom we have in the audience, what we are taught, unfortunately, is uh, Jews were saved by keeping the laws. That is not the truth at all. The laws allowed them to remove sin when they sinned and to be enter back into the covenant relationship that was already there by grace. And so when Paul talks about grace of God and salvation in Romans, look at what he calls the people who are saved. Um, This is what Julie read earlier. Romans 9.1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Paul says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother's. That's a lot of love. You recognize what Paul just said? I would be willing to go to hell and suffer the wrath of God if the people I love are safe in him. When you think about saying I love you to someone, think about if you mean that. Okay? I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. 
To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, genetically, physically. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of Abraham's flesh, his DNA, his genetics, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're tall or short. It doesn't matter if you're skinny or not so skinny, right? If you enter into salvation, you are entering in through the covenant of gracious promise that God gave to Abraham. In other words, it looks like this. From Abram, the Abrahamic covenant was established. God would eventually bring the new covenant as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And those who are in the midst of that promise that through the offspring of Abraham, and Paul just clarified for us, it's not DNA-based, it's based off of faith, off of trusting God and having allegiance to Yahweh above all other gods. If you enter into salvation, you're entering in through that covenant promise. Now, what we will see today is that there is even more. The very important uh, nature of the fact that we as Gentiles... We weren't in that original Abrahamic covenant. And so when Jesus came, what he did is he paved a way for us Gentiles to enter into that same covenant and continue on into glory. This is the nature of the gospel that the New Testament proclaims, especially what we're going to cover today in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Now there's one more very important covenant that we have not talked about. And that is the Mosaic Covenant, the law, as Paul often calls it. Now, why was it put in place? If this is the picture, then why was there this weird Mosaic law thrown in there? Well, turn with me to Galatians. Go a little bit to the right, to Galatians 3.16. Galatians 3.16. I'm stepping in in the middle of a paragraph here just for the sake of time. Galatians 3.16, Paul says to the church of Galatia, to the Christians, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is the Messiah? The Christ. This is what I mean, Paul says, which I'm glad for because often Paul's confusing. He says, this is what I mean. The law, meaning the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law, which came 430 years afterward. Okay? What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the fact that the Mosaic Law came 430 years after the promises were made to Abraham. It does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God, the Abrahamic Covenant, so as to make the promise void. In other words, God didn't go, oh, well, Abraham failed. I'm getting rid of that promise. Let's start over. Moses, you're my guy now. Okay? He didn't remove it, didn't make it void. For the inheritance comes by the law, uh, for if the inheritance comes by the law, no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? Good question, Paul. Answer it for us. 
Well, it was added because of transgressions. What's transgression? Another word for transgressions? Sin. Okay? Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." And if you are Christ's, then you are, what's it say there? Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Okay. Let's just, can we all agree Paul's a genius, right? (laughs) The guy is just way smarter than any of us could ever hope to be. Let me see if I can break it down in a way that I can understand it. Hopefully you can understand it. The Mosaic law was put in place 430 years after the initial covenant promised to Abraham. Well, do you guys... Remember what happened that day where they came out to the desert? They all got there and they said, let's worship Yahweh in spirit and truth and holiness. And they raised their hands. That's how it happened, right? No, what happened? Moses went up the mountain. What were all the people of Israel doing? Getting down with the bad selves, right? And I do mean their bad selves. They built a calf and they said, this is the God that took us out of Israel. And they took Yahweh and they formed him into a golden calf. And then it says that they rose up to play, which is King James English for doing really nasty, gross, bad stuff. We'll leave it there. They were worshiping in the way of the pagans that they had learned in Egypt in the kingdom of darkness. The God that they created was an Egyptian God. And they said, well, yeah, we know his name's Yahweh, but let's just make him like the gods of this world. They did Romans 1. And so God, knowing that this would happen, he instituted a covenant with them that was a system of law that helped them to understand how not to completely go over the edge, the cliff edge, into the world. Okay? He said, live this way so that when you do sin, come bring a sacrifice, get your eyes focused back on Yahweh, come to the tabernacle, stay close to Yahweh. Why? Because they needed a guardian. The word in the Greek for that word guardian was a person who would, in a very rich home, would take the child and would be their guardian on the way to school. It does not, if you've ever been taught this, it does not mean schoolmaster. It does not mean teacher. It means a guardian that led them and protected them until they got to school so that they could then learn in fullness. The law was the guardian to keep all of Israel, the people, at least somewhat unstained from the world so that they still worshipped Yahweh by the time a guy named Yeshua of Nazareth showed up. And then the guardian could go away because the Messiah was here. That's why the Mosaic Covenant was put in place. When the offspring or seed came, Jesus the Christ, the law was no longer needed to protect the people of Abraham, and so it was removed. It did not replace, it did not nullify the Abrahamic covenant. All of God's promises, his grace, which is what saved the Jews, 
was long before the law was ever put into place. The Jews were not saved by keeping the law. The Jews were protected by keeping the law. They were saved by operating under the Abrahamic covenant of God's gracious promise. It's always been grace, folks. Isn't that good news? It's always been grace. Our God wasn't this mean, you know, grumpy old man who was like, get off my lawn. And then now he's like, oh, come into my house, right? That's not our God. But that's what most of us think going Old Testament, New Testament. No, he's always been a God of grace. His character's never changed. And so those that enter into the covenant of promise given to Abraham are now his offspring. To not enter into that covenant, guys, is to continue on the path of wrath and eternal judgment. And so for the average human among the nations, we would continue in wrath if it were not for the goodness of God. So, Let's pause here for a second and let's just ask, for the average human among the nations, what would be needed to draw near to Yahweh, the creator God? Well, let's just step through it here, okay? The first thing that you would need to do is step away from your gods and your people in the kingdom of darkness and go towards which group of people? No, back then. This is Old Testament, guys. First thing, you, let's say that you are a, an Amorite. You're like, I worship the Amorite gods. You know, I'm following their path. I'm part of their kingdom. What's the first thing you'd need to do to draw close to Yahweh, the, the God of Israel? You'd have to stop following the Amorites and you'd have to go where? Towards Israel, right? So the first thing a person would have to do to follow God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, you'd have to leave your gods and your people, just like Abraham. Leave your gods and your people. Now, as a Gentile, let's say I'm an Amorite or a Hittite or something. As a Gentile, outside the covenant people of God, you could only go so far towards God's presence. Let's say you lived at the time of Jesus and you got to Israel. You showed up in the land and you wanted to go worship Yahweh. There's a problem. Yahweh resides in one temple and one temple alone. And you'd come to this place that's circled there in red called the Gentiles' courtyard. And there is a wall that was about... Yay high. Well, I guess for them it was probably about yay high, right? <laughs> halfway for me is not halfway for them back then. And it was a railing. It was a short wall. And that wall says, you as a Gentile can go no far- farther. Is that where God dwelt in the Gentiles' courtyard? No. So you might as well be on the other side of the universe. You're not close to Yahweh. Now, why couldn't you go past there? Well, because he's the God of the covenant people of the Jews, And so on this wall, they had inscriptions. Here's one that was found by archaeologists, and it states this. It states it in Latin and Greek and um, uh, Hebrew. It says, no foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade or the wall and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. Now, they've gotten a lot more relaxed because when I showed up at the Wailing Wall uh, a few years ago, I had my hat on, you know, and this, this uh, Orthodox Jew comes over and he taps me on the shoulder. He says, turn your hat around. And I'm like, oh, my grandma taught me never to wear my hat backwards when I'm, you know, in a place of worship. He's like, no, make it look like a yarmulke, you idiot. So I turned it around, I made it look like a yarmulke, and I, I stood there and I worshiped at the Wailing Wall. Uh, back then, you know what would have happened? He would have come over with a knife and shanked me for the glory of God. Because Gentiles do not go past that wall. Why? Because they're unclean. Because they can't be near Yahweh. They're not in covenant with him. 
So if you wanted to get past that wall, you're a Gentile, and you wanted to get past the wall that says no Gentiles, what did you have to do? You had to become a Jew. You had to join the covenant people of Yahweh. You had to join the covenant people of Yahweh. Now, how did you do that if you were a male? You had to go through circumcision. Okay? You'd need to join the covenant people of Yahweh by entering into the Abrahamic covenant. Now, question for you. Did God enter into the covenant with Abraham before or after he instituted circumcision? Before. He gave grace long before the mark was ever there, but later he said, do this mark. We don't have time to go into why he said that, uh, but it's important. Now, once you got inside, let's say you were circumcised and you became a Jew and you showed up. Ladies, you are stuck because over here to the right, that big area, that's called the woman's courtyard. You're better than Gentiles, but you can't go near Yahweh, right? There's reasons for that. Uh, I'm not going to get into them. Let's just say that, praise God, Jesus came, so there's neither male nor female any longer, right? So the wall's broken down. But if you were a male, you could go through that place and you could show up. But here's a problem. Could you enter the temple? No, why not? Why couldn't you enter the temple? Because only the priests could enter, and only the priests could enter if they did one thing, they would need to offer an atoning sacrifice for sin. You see, this little spot right here that's circled, that's the altar. And you had to give a perfect sacrifice to cleanse your sin so that you might enter the temple of God. And that was only if you were a priest. And only one person, the high priest, could get all the way into the Holy of Holies one time a year. And then, if you were that holy, uh, in that Holy of Holies, you're entering the temple and you're in Yahweh's presence. That's how you got saved and got near the presence of Yahweh in the Old Testament. If you were just a typical Jew, you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. You had to rely on the priest to do the work for you. But you were near Yahweh. So everybody got that? You guys understand that? Gentiles previously would have had no hope of ever being in God's presence. Raise your hand if you're a Gentile, if you're not 100% Jewish. Okay? We all would have been in wrath and hell. Now, just for fun, turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Have I completely lost you yet? No? All right. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Jesus has come, the Holy Spirit is there. Peter and the disciples go out and they preach the gospel that Jesus, the Messiah, has finally come, who the Jews have been waiting for. And man, they were cut to the quick. The Jews said, man, we have crucified our Lord and it looks, we look at verse 38 there. They heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said, brothers, what shall we do? Look at how Peter responds to them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort him, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, guys, I, I find nothing wrong with the sinner's prayer. I think it's a good thing. Okay, I'm not ripping on it. But do you find it present here anywhere? No. What is the movement, the action of the people in response to accepting the gospel? Repentance and baptism. Okay. This was our list of how you drew near to the God in the Old Testament. First thing you do is you leave your gods, your people, your thoughts, your opinions, your world, your kingdom, and you pursue God and his kingdom, otherwise known as the word repent. Jews had to do it. We have to do it. Problem is, is most Christians are told, you don't have to change anything. Just pray the prayer. You're good. God saves you. Second thing they had to do was they had to join the covenant people of God. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad that's not us because me, I, it's just me and Jesus out in the woods, man. Guys, what is the sign of baptism? It's stepping into the covenant community of God. This is what Paul says in Colossians 2.11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's talking to Christians here. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in, what's that word? Baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. It saddens me that the church has replaced baptism with the sinner's prayer. If we are Christians, we show the world by being baptized. That's how we enter the covenant people of God. Third thing that the Jews had to do was they had to offer an atoning sacrifice for sin. Notice what Peter says. He says, repent and be baptized in the authority of whom? In the name, the authority, the onoma of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. For what? For the forgiveness of your sins. That's altar language, guys. That's offering an atoning sacrifice for sin by pleading the blood of Jesus. Jesus, I accept you as my Savior. You have died for me, and I am entering into your covenant people through baptism to state clearly that I have left behind what I used to know and follow, and I serve you and you alone. And then the fourth thing that would happen for the Jew was that they would enter the temple in God's presence. But what does Peter say? He says, and you will receive what? Yahweh's presence of the Holy Spirit, individually and communally. Now, in 70 AD, the temple was torn down. What is the temple of the Most High God now? Us. See, this is the reality of God's salvation. It has been at work since the foundations of the world. The Abrahamic covenant was how they were saved. The Abrahamic covenant is how we are saved. We just know who our sacrifice is, and his sacrifice is perfect and eternal for all time for all people. We don't have to go wrangle a cow slit its throat, and give a sacrifice. Knowing all of this, this is why Paul calls New Testament believers children of Abraham, not children of Moses. We enter into relationship with Yahweh the same way. His gracious covenant of promise is given. We turn to him away from all that we knew. We step into his covenant people through baptism. Praise God, it's not circumcision anymore all while pleading the sacrificial blood of Jesus, and we are given his presence through the Holy Spirit. 
Now, either the silence in here is deafening because all of you are like, wow, that just totally tweaked all my theology, or some of you are like, I don't get it. Everybody following me so far? Okay. So in our text today, Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, when Paul contrasts Gentiles with God's covenant people, this is the background he is using. So turn with me to Ephesians 2. And I'll just say now, uh, my email is hans at missionsalem.com, and I uh, am happy to meet with you if you have any questions after today's service. There we go. Ephesians 2, take a look at verse 11. We just got done talking last week about uh, being saved by grace through faith, that there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation, just like there was nothing that the Jews could do to earn their salvation. It was given to them by grace. And then we talked about entering into the new kingdom, uh, operating under the logos, the, the system of which God has put in place, the good works in which we are to walk, not to earn salvation, but because of salvation. And Paul steps in here, and he says this, Therefore, because of all this, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. In other words, you guys were out of the covenant. And this is a covenant made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, from the Messiah. Remember, this isn't a name here. This isn't Jesus' name. This is saying you were separated from the promise of a Messiah, someone who could save you. You had no hope. And that's what he says here. He says, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The first thing Paul says here to us is this. Write this down. Remember that you were once separated from God's covenant love and covenant people. By our own sin, we did this to ourselves. By the fact that we rebel against God in word and deed. In the core of our hearts, we are separated by original sin. Remember that you were once separated from God's covenant love and covenant people. Remember that the nations, remember this graphic I showed you? Remember that the nations were not part of his people, Israel. They could not be part of the covenant of promise. To be part of the covenant was to be circumcised. And if a male child was not circumcised on the eighth day, he was, you can go back and read it in Genesis 17, he was to be cut off from his people because he had broken God's covenant. This is what Paul is referring to with the phrase Gentiles in the flesh. Because they didn't have the fleshly marking of the covenant, they were called uncircumcised because that's what they were. And this was shorthand for not being part of God's covenant people and therefore outside the covenant of God's love. And so the Gentiles, the goyim, the ethne, us, The nations, we were outside the covenant promises of God and therefore we were without the promise of a Messiah, the one that would bring shalom and restoration and crush the head of Satan and his kingdom of darkness. Gentiles were strangers to God's kingdom and people. One who is not within the covenant people of God means that they have de facto become covenant citizens in another kingdom. But the reality was that having an outward sign of covenant faithfulness did not mean you were actually covenantally faithful. You could get circumcised all you want, but it doesn't mean you're actually walking within the covenant, right? 
It's the very statement that people have made about our covenant. I can do all the rules that are in this covenant, but it doesn't mean I'm walking with God. And I would say, amen, you're absolutely right. That's not why we put it in place. It wasn't outward in order to force an inward. The outward was a sign of the inward change. And so this is what Paul meant when he said, this sign is a sign performed by human hands, human work. The ratification on the part of the human means nothing. It's the internal transformation by the work of the Holy Spirit of God that truly ratifies the covenant. In other words, circumcision is worthless if you have no desire to ever step into the presence of God. But Paul's point is that even if the Gentiles, the nations, did not want to be in the presence of Yahweh, well, if they wanted to, they couldn't. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, this word commonwealth, how many of you have used that word this week? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah? Okay, Ethan, you use commonwealth often? Good for you, buddy. Well done, parents. You've given him a good vocabulary. <laughs> commonwealth is not one we use often. The Greek word uh, is, uh, means a society or a community. It's where we get the word politics, politeia. Okay? An easier way to say it is the nations were alienated from citizenship within the covenant people of Israel. And because they were alienated from the citizenship of Israel, that meant they were strangers or foreigners to the covenant promise that went along with being part of that group of people. And this is why God calls us to love strangers or foreigners. Because we, Gentiles, were strangers to God's covenant love. So when strangers show up on our doorstep from other countries, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to act like God and love them. People of other ethnic groups, who did God love? He loved us, the ethne. What are we as Christians supposed to do? Love everyone of other ethnic groups. We were without hope. We were without God, without his salvation. There was nothing we could do, nothing we could earn. Judgment and wrath was all that awaited us. But Paul didn't leave it there. He also calls us to remember not only the state of our sinful selves and the fact we had no hope, but secondly, he remembers it calls us to remember in verse 13 that God's work has reconciled us. You can write this down. We also need to remember that God reconciled us, reconciled you to his covenant people through Jesus. When you understand the contrast of the first point, it makes this one amazing. There are certain points in my life where I have had moments where I thought I wasn't going to make it. Only two of them. Uh, one of the times was uh, because I was narked under the influence of gases because of scuba. Uh, my wife and I were uh, with a technical scuba dive instructor and he was taking us down far past the limits of where you're supposed to go. And so we were down at about 200 feet. You're only supposed to really go about 80, 90, 100 or 110 is pretty deep. 200 feet, you're down way too deep and you start to have a ton of uh, nitrogen uh, bubbles in your body and it causes you to get kind of drunk and narked. And so I had gone down with the technical diver. I had two tanks, totally fine. I'm holding on to one tank like this and I get down at a certain level and I look at my watch and I see what air I have left in my first tank. Well, it was pretty low. Well, being narked, I didn't realize that I was hugging a second tank. And so for about a minute... I thought I was going to die. Didn't matter if it was actually not reality. I thought I was going to die. 
You know how they say that life passes before your eyes? I really wanted a like, more flashy life because it was pretty boring. <laughs> All I could sit there and think about was my wife is up in front of me. I'm never going to see her again and I'm not going to see my kids and I'm not going to see my church. I'm going to get to see Jesus, but I don't want to yet, right? And in that moment, I had such a darkness descend that I thought I wasn't going to make it. So I wheeled around and I looked at the technical diver and I tried to say that I was low on air, but the signal that came across was I was out of air. And he ran over and kind of smacked me in the head and pointed at my second tank and I went, oh, praise Jesus, okay. I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm not going to die, right? And everything worked out just fine. But in that moment of the darkness of realizing, man, I may not make it out of this, guess how great that news was of, you moron, you have a second tank, right? That was amazing. Well, Paul does the same thing. He says, guys, remember that you had no hope, none whatsoever. And I think somewhere in me as a human being, I go, well, but yeah, but I'm kind of a good person. Jesus really wanted me for his team. There's something innately within me that God would have saved me. No, nothing. Complete darkness and wrath. That's what I deserved. And that's what you deserved. But God reconciled us. Even when he didn't have to, he had been gracious to one group of people. He could have stopped there and been the most gracious being ever. He said to us, hey, I want to save you as well. And in the Old Testament days, a person could leave their people, their kingdom, their king, and make the trek to Israel. They could repent from all opinions and actions contrary to God. But that would not be enough to get them in the presence of God. You could get circumcised. You could walk past that first gate. You could walk up there into the red circle and you could stand there at the altar. But folks, that altar might as well be across the universe from the actual presence of God. If you didn't have a sacrifice, it did not matter. In New Testament terminology, you can repent. You can be better. You can go to a church. You can sign up for covenant membership. It does not matter. You might as well be across the universe from the presence of Yahweh. What did you need? The same thing you need today. You needed a sacrifice. What was necessary to make it into the presence of God was a sacrifice that would cleanse you and remove your sin, pay for your atonement so that you might be able to draw into the presence of God. And this is why John the Baptist knew that he could baptize Jews in the idea of repentance and cleanse them temporarily. But this was only paving the way for the fullness of the need of the Messiah to die as a sacrifice. Look at what John says to the people. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. And you can almost kind of hear him go, meh. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's speaking of being cleansed by the fire of God himself just as Isaiah was in the temple of God, cleansed and brought into the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, entering into a covenant relationship with God and with his people. And so, dear flock, there are two major points that Paul helps us to understand in our text today, and he sets the the stage for the rest of what we will study in chapter 2 and the rest of the letter. The first thing is that without Christ's sacrifice, it does not matter what we do, how we change, how nice we become, or what religious traditions we perform. We are separated from God. What an amazing love of God that while we were alienated from him, he put into action all that was necessary to bring us into his presence. 
He stepped into mankind, laid down his own life on the cross so that our sins might be forgiven and we might be resurrected to eternal life in his presence. Secondly, though, Paul also begins to paint the picture, and we'll cover this in more detail, that to be in relationship with Yahweh in his presence is to likewise step into a covenant community and citizenship among God's people. And he will carry this idea throughout the rest of the letter. This is why when we stepped into the idea of covenant membership, I said we're going through Ephesians. Why? Because it paints the picture so beautifully. God has no room for consumer Christians. That might be how you dip your toe in the water, but if you are not part of the covenant people of God, you're in trouble. Well, Hans, are you saying that to be saved, we have to sign the covenant that you guys have given us? No, not at all. Not at all. Are you part of the people of God here? If you are, I would submit to you, and this is my opinion, this is not the word of God, it's a pretty quick thing to take a pen and sign a piece of paper that says you're already here. And that's why we're doing it, is to help you acknowledge and affirm and say to this body and to Yahweh, I am part of your people. I walk with your people. And we'll carry this idea through the rest of the letter. Brothers and sisters, it is so important for us to remember this each and every day. The core of the gospel is the sacrifice of Jesus. And what that allows us to do is to step into the covenant people of God and to be in Yahweh's presence. Whether or not you sign a piece of paper doesn't matter. Paul paints this picture so beautifully for us that we are to remember constantly this fact. We were in darkness and death and sin, and he acted to save us by his grace and pull us into his presence. And so he says, remember. Memory has such power in our lives. Traumatic memories lodged deep in our subconscious can spark involuntary fear and reaction where we no longer feel in control. Joyous memories that we bring to mind can place us back on solid ground. And so Paul, recognizing the power of memory, commands the church of Ephesus to recall the good news. That they first remember that they were separated from God without hope in the world, but because of that, God himself became their hope. Out of his great love, he sent his son to die in their place as a sacrifice for their sin so that they might repent, join his covenant people through baptism, and step into his presence each and every day. We're going to be doing a baptism here shortly before the congregational member meeting. If you claim to be a Christian and you've never stepped into baptism, that's your day. Mark it down. I don't have a date yet, but when I do, mark it down. Be baptized. And if you did that, if you stepped into his presence through repentance, joining his covenant people through the sign of the covenant, and stepping into his presence each and every day, you would be Walking in a way that glorifies him, showing yourself as a child of the light. So my point for application this morning is for us to do this. To constantly remember the goodness of God so that we might be motivated by it. To constantly remember the goodness of God so that we might be motivated by it. And this will propel us into the rest of the letter ready to do all that Paul commands. You see, it's interesting. We are saved by grace, but Paul himself, the church planner extraordinaire, what is the second half of all of his letters? 
the obligations and the activity of being a Christian, living amongst the covenant people of God. And that is what he's going to step us into. But guys, to do that under white-knuckle stress and power on our own power, it's not going to work. It never does, never has, never will. And so God calls us through Paul to remember the goodness of God so that we might be motivated by it. This is the last point here. You can write this down. He gives us a constant, calls us to a constant remembrance of the gospel because it gives us perspective, identity, and purpose. Paul called the church of Ephesus to a remembrance because he knew without the motivation of God's love and grace, there would be no way to convince the people to follow the commands contained in the second half of the letter and walk as children of the light. Do you get that? Paul knew this. Let me read that again. He knew without the motivation of God's love and grace that there would be no way to convince the people to follow the commands contained in the second half of the letter to walk as children of the light. I find so often that the reason people can't engage in the commands of Christ is because they don't believe he's good. I see this in marriage counseling all the time. I got two people who I want so badly to let down and open up and be vulnerable and share how much they need the other person. But why don't they do that? Because they're afraid that the second they hand that over to the other person, that person will take it and stab them with it. And so to get people to operate within marriage counseling, the first thing I have to do is I have to get them to stop stabbing each other metaphorically. And I have to help them remember and go back to the place where they used to look at each other and go, wow, I really like you and I really like you. Why? Because I think you're good. And see, the gospel does the same thing for us. We get so twisted in bad theology and the waves and doctrine of the world that we get to this place where we go, God, are you really good? Because you're not operating on my timeline or my ways. And then we realize, oh, wow, I'm back in Romans 1. I have recreated the world around me. And what the gospel does is the gospel reminds us in that moment, no, 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 you're in darkness right there. Step back into the place where God is God. He is king and you are not. And remember that he is good. How do I know you're good, Jesus? The cross. Jesus, the cross. How do I know you're good? Jesus, the cross. And from then on, it's all downhill. It gives us perspective. And that perspective is that the truth is, is that God is good always, no matter what. He's always been reaching out to a world that denies him and turns their back on his goodness. And yet he continues, generation after generation, reaching out to a broken and sinful world. He could have left us in our distress, our rebellion, but guys, he didn't. I would have left me. I annoy myself. I can't even imagine what God thinks. But he didn't leave me and he didn't leave you. It's sheer grace and love that he has delivered even one person from wrath and hell, let alone the nations. There was nothing and is nothing innate within me or you that forced God or required of him our salvation. It's only by his grace. Our God is good and he can be trusted with our very lives. It changes our perspective to remember the gospel. But secondly, Paul wanted to give the church at Ephesus a new identity. The world looks at one another and judges based on its values in the flesh. 
And so, like that couple sitting on the couch in marriage counseling, like I've been, like many of you have been, we walk around living in self-deception and self-protection, never fully being able to walk in relational freedom because if someone else isn't comparing or critiquing, we're doing it to ourselves. And our identity is as fluid as the last comment made about us. And this is no way for a person, let alone the church of God, to function. If the church stays there, if we walk around one another constantly self-protecting, operating in passive aggressiveness and at distance, we do nothing to magnify the glory of God. All we speak is hypocrisy. What Paul reminds us of here is our identity. What is our identity? What is your identity? That you are the beloved covenant people of God. Let me say that again. You are the beloved covenant people of God. Let that identify you this week. It's not because we earned it or because we're innately special, but because God pulled together a group of misfits to show his surpassing glory and goodness. Who does that identify? You and me. And we are a people, while made up of individuals, we realize that our power comes in our ability to live as a citizenry only if we think communally and covenantally. This is what shows the power of God to the nations. Paul points out that our identity requires the love of each other as God's covenant people. And in receiving that love, we are affirmed in our identity as his children. If it's not a big idea to Paul to be part of a covenant people, why does he constantly ask us to operate in that way? Well, third, Paul not only gives us perspective and identity, but he gives us purpose. The world says my purpose is to be successful and comfortable, to aim for retirement and live the life to the fullest. Nothing totally wrong with that. In essence, it's saying eat, drink, and be merry. But guys, you have a greater purpose than this. Our purpose is to, is to call the rest of the goyim, the ethne, the nations of the world, out of their kingdom and their people and to call them to the temple of God where we are already worshiping. If you were an Old Testament Jew, you would not go there and say, hey, let's stay here and worship Yahweh. No, you'd say, come with me to the place where Yahweh is worshiped, the temple of the Most High God. That's why people made pilgrimages there. And so the nations of the world are to be called to something. What are we calling them to? A Jew wouldn't say, hey, you should go to Israel. I'll stay here in Hittite land. No, they'd grab them by the hand. They'd say, let's go to the temple together because we're going to go worship. This is not just in a metaphoric and disembodied way, but in a real and practical and physical process of drawing the nations into God's covenant people under God's reign. And to do so, we have to know the gospel and practice speaking the gospel, but we also need to live the effects of the gospel now, today, so that it motivates us to be that covenant community into which we can call those that we love. Mission Fellowship, this morning, I believe God is calling us to adjust our perspective and to understand our identity and our purpose and remember that while we were once separated from God and his people, Without hope in the world, the work of Jesus Christ has brought us into the fold of his sheep 
the people of his covenant faithfulness. And he has called us in a way that we would live lives motivated daily, moment by moment, by the gospel. How often do you think throughout the week of the gospel? Sundays? Five minutes in your morning devotions? We are called to be motivated, motivated by it, minute by minute, hour by hour. It is everything to us. It is who we are. It is how we live. Realize that he has already reached out to you and he has brought you near. Stand amongst his people, not just as an attendee at an event for a church, but stand among his people in the midst of the throne room of heaven as Jesus is enthroned on the praises of his people and give glory to him in the way that is due to his name. Forget the fact we're in a gym and recognize that you are just as Isaiah was standing in the presence of the king, crying out, I am a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. And Jesus took the coal off of the altar and cleansed them and said, now you, you go and you preach. That's us. Let everything else fade away and give glory to Yahweh Elohim, the highest of highs, the God above gods, the name above names. And begin a practice that should not just occur on Sundays, but every day. Remember his goodness and his mercy. That's because of him, not of us. Remember his grace that he has called you near to be loved by him and loved in the midst of his people. And then once we are done and we receive the blessing from the Lord, we go from this place and we let this remembrance ignite us and motivate us to draw others near to Yahweh that are far from him.